Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. We start with Jim Voss, an electronics expert and a personal friend of Stuart Hamblin. Jim Voss tells of what God did in the life of country radio star Stuart Hamblin. Hello there. When speaking of Stuart Hamlin, my mind often wanders back to the man I used to know, popular radio entertainer that had the program titled Stuart Hamlin and His Lucky Stars. Every afternoon, long about 5.15, you could hear Stuart's program on KFWB in Hollywood. And, well, it was a real program to hear filled with western songs and stories of the range and many times some little quips of his own stuck in that, well, I had an appreciation for them then, but now my taste would probably run quite different. But the thing that surprised me so was one morning, reading on the front page of the Los Angeles Examiner, the story of the conversion of Stuart Hamlin. The headline had read, Stuart Hamlin hits the sawdust trail. And I guess as the writer intended I should, I, I laughed, laughed most heartily because I just thought this was a, another publicity gag, another effort on the part of Stuart to get some free publicity. I knew Stuart best because he owned a string of racehorses and a good string at that. El Lobo, one of his finest ponies, had brought him thousands and thousands of dollars, and then many others that had brought in the cash for the boss more than once. And I knew him for this, but I knew him too because he was such a rugged, two-fisted cowboy. Not just the drugstore variety, but a fellow that had plenty of punch, and oftentimes he'd end up in jail because, oh, he happened to let his speak before he had opportunity to think. And knowing all this about Stuart, you can imagine I was well surprised when I read of his conversion. But I have listened to Stuart since, for we've been on the same programs together many times, and I have heard his testimony, a thrilling story of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And Stuart would tell you if he was here all about how he tried to run away from God, how he tried to hide from God. He, when Billy was in town, had met Billy Graham at a summer conference ground and at that time had more or less promised Billy that he'd come and hear him when he was in the big canvas tent. And, and he went to hear him, not just once, but several times. And then, oh, his wife had tried to get him back one more time, just one more time, and how folks were praying that Stuart might be reached with the story of Christ. But then he, he was just determined. He was so bitter about it all, he was determined he wasn't going to any more Graham meetings. And so he, he went off one weekend up into the mountains, took his horse that he always carried with him when he went hunting and his dogs, and headed out to hunt in the great mountains there of Southern California. But he didn't get very far, just about halfway up the mountainside when one of the worst thunderstorms that ever struck thunder, Southern California 
hit right on top of Stuart Hamlin, and the rain just drenched him, and the further he went, the worse it was, and he muttered to himself he was looking forward to a wonderful weekend, but here it was all ruined. And he thought when he left town, well, just this weekend, and the meetings will be over. And he was determined to hold out, so he went back down to his cabin, and there holed up for a little while. And going down at the conclusion of the weekend, <laughs> miserable as it had all been, he got back home, and when he arrived home, his wife greeted him with the words, Well, what do you think, Stuart? Billy Graham's meetings are going on for one more week. Stuart was disgusted. He thought, well, I guess I'll have to go again. And he tried de tried desperately to, to run away from it all. In fact, the night his wife wanted him to go, he went tripsing off to a bar down downtown Los Angeles, and from one place to another he went, determined he wouldn't go to that meeting, but so under conviction, for he knew, yes, just like I did, that this was the way. Even as Christ said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Stuart knew this. And one night, in the middle of a night, when he was trying desperately to run away from it all, he came back home, got his wife up, and he said, Woman, get up. I, I've got to get this thing settled. And old Stuart got on the telephone, got a hold of Billy Graham, got Billy Graham out of bed, and the two of them went down, and, and there they prayed by the side of Billy Graham's bed. And, and Stuart Hamlin decided that he was going God, God's way. He was going to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. But then that last verse, There is no night, but in his light you'll never walk alone. You'll always feel at home, no matter where you roam. I know what must have been going through Stuart's mind when, when those words came out of the pen that scratched out the song that's so popular now. Jim Voss is now being followed by Johnny Erickson Tata. In a 1989 phone interview with Lorne Decker and John DeBrine, Johnny introduces her new book, Glorious Intruder, and explains the meaning of the title. She candidly shares meaningful stories involving her marriage and personal life. Uh, can you just sort of uh, give an opening statement about the book and we'll have you come in cold? Me? Yeah. Okay. Something like, you know, Glorious Intruder is my new book or something like that, you know. Want me to do that now? Yeah, come back from five and go ahead. Okay. Five, four, three, two, one. I know you probably think that Glorious Intruder is an unusual title. I mean, who thinks of God as an intruder? But I like to think of God as a loving parent who cares enough to step into my life during those moments when I need comfort or correction. From God's point of view, he never intrudes. He has every right to step into my life. But from my point of view, well, sometimes the intervention is a little tough. When he pushes me out of my comfort zones especially, I just need to understand those times as glorious. And that's what the book, Glorious Intruder, is all about. 
Of course, very few of us in 20th century America experienced the Job-sized kind of trials that we read about in the book of Job. I mean, I'm far from sitting on a heap of manure covered with boils, uh, mocked by my friends, and having lost my entire family and all of my possessions. I would tremble to think of my response to God if I got hit broadside with those kind of trials. But God only gives you and me and our listeners the size trials that he knows we can handle with his grace. And it just so happens that God knows that I can handle total paralysis with his grace. You know, though, I know some people who are paralyzed far more than me. I have a friend named Vicki Olivas, and she is so paralyzed that the most she can do is just move her head from side to side. At least I can flail my arms around or shrug my shoulders. She can't even do that. And just the other night I was with Vicky, and I said to her, Vicky, man, I don't know how you do it. I, I just don't think I could handle that much paralysis. And she laughed and said, well, I have a friend who's hooked up to a ventilator, a breathing machine. That's how paralyzed he is. I don't understand how he can do it. Well, God gives Vicky, God gives her friend who's on a respirator, and God gives me unique grace to handle our unique problems. In view of that, let's speak directly to a, a gentleman in the ministry. He's vacationing down here with his family, and he dove into a wave out here at Coast Guard Beach, broke his neck, and there is paralysis. The extent of it at the moment is not total, but uh, it's, it's quite severe. He was a lifeguard before he went into the ministry. I mean, like you, very athletic. And he's wondering, am I going to be back in the pulpit again? Am I going to be ministering? You, what would you say to him? He's listening to us right now. Well, first I'd tell him that it's a good time to cry. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4 says there's a time to weep and a time to mourn. And let me tell you, when I was first injured, John, the last person I wanted to see was a happy lady in a wheelchair. I didn't want to see anybody come wheeling into my hospital room with a smile on her face. And to me, that was degrading. It was humiliating. I got angry at people like that. And so we're not here talking about glib, um, glib advice. We're not telling people to pull themselves up by their own spiritual bootstraps and paste on a plastic smile. No, I think the first thing we ought to do is just give people the opportunity to grieve the loss of a body that works. I mean, it's a hard thing to to grieve the loss of your arms or your hands or your legs that no longer work. Everybody's got to go through a catharsis where they just sort through their emotions and come to a balance uh, with their feelings. Then they have the wherewithal to look more objectively at God's Word. So I'd say, hey, get a, get a box of Kleenex, find a friend who won't preach at you, but will just sit next to you and listen to you, talk with him, pray with him, cry with him, be silent with him, and just, just take some time to hurt. And, of course, uh, it didn't turn out to be such a great vacation, but I'm sure from it he's got a church behind him in prayer, prayer like uh, perhaps they've never prayed before. You know, that's the key. You said it right there, John. I mean, when I was first injured, uh, I think I've told you this before, but, it, but it's, it's worth repeating. My high school youth counselor got together with two high school friends of mine, and they decided to pray for me every Thursday morning once a week for an entire year. 
And they did. They carried it on for an entire year. Specific concentrated prayer every hour once a week for a full year. And I honestly think that I'm able to sit in this wheelchair and, um, and live with purpose and meaning and live with a smile because of those prayers. I think it's the key. I really do. Johnny, glorious intruder. You mentioned that sometimes God comes along and pushes you out of your comfort zone. It seems as though many Christians, they do whatever they can to find their comfort zone and remain there. Does Jesus push us out of the comfort zone because we need to be out of that place in order to be effective at all? I I think that's true, Lauren. I mean, think about it. Sacrifice is something that we here in 20th century America, we Christians just, we, we, we just avoid with a 10-foot pole. I mean, we will serve, we'll serve understandably and reasonably and within logic. I mean, we will serve within reason, but when it comes to sacrifice, you know, going the extra mile, giving the shirt when somebody asks for our coat, then it gets tough. But God says that that kind of service um, is ordinary Christian service. To sacrifice like that is to just do what God expects of us. I, I know, for instance, um, God is constantly intruding in my life. I, I feel that, uh, that I've done enough for you today, Lord. <laughs> I've put in my nine-to-five day for you, and then I get home, and I don't know, maybe I feel as though I have a right to be understood by Ken, my husband, but he gets upset with me for something that seems to be very minor, and, uh, and a disagreement erupts, and God expects me to sacrifice more, to look out for Ken's interests before my own, to see things from his point of view before my own. And sometimes I think that's an intrusion in my comfort zone, but God wants me to live for him 24 hours a day, not just from 9 to 5. Um, you mentioned that sometimes when you come home from work, you might have a disagreement arise with Ken. Now, anybody who's read Choices Changes, which is our Songtime Investors book for the month of October, um, anybody who's read that book is just, you know, so pleased for your marriage and meeting Ken. And I think some would think that Johnny and Ken never fight. Of course not. And a lot of folks listening to this to this program have marriages that they're working on. Some are separated. Some are trying to keep things together. Some are just, you know, riding into work after having a fight with their spouse. Oh, listen, we just had a disagreement last night, and he hasn't forgiven me yet. Uh-oh. Well, you better tell us what you're, what you're learning along these lines. Uh, <laughs> what can I say? I mean, good grief. We've got a barbecue planned for 50 people up at our house Saturday, right? It's all of the staff and their entire family. Now, this is only one side of the story, folks, but go ahead. Well, you know, it's 50 people. And he has a friend who's coming in, flying into the Orange County Airport uh, at, at 2 o'clock. And he wants to go pick his friend up at 2 o'clock. And our barbecue begins at 3 o'clock. There is no way he's going to get back in time to put on the tri-tip steaks, steaks on the barbecue. And so, yeah, this is the kind of thing we have disagreements about. <laughs> well... Have you worked out a, a method of settling these things? That you know, here's a piece of practical advice. We won't ask James Dobbs, and we'll ask Johnny Erickson Tata. <laughs> I called up a friend and asked her to go pick up the guy and bring him up to our house, and we're going to entertain this friend of Ken's at our staff barbecue. So that way, Ken will have the opportunity to spend time with his friend, but also we'll have the chance to get our barbecue started on time. 
I, I, I just feel that, um, you know, there, we all have to find some kind of balance, some kind of compromise, and learn from it. And listen, I'm not knocking my husband. He is the most wonderful guy. But we've got to be honest. We've got to be real. Uh, unmet expectations and hurt feelings are just a part of what it means to be human, especially human in a marriage. And uh, Ken and I aren't frightened by these disagreements we may have. We just got to, you know, talk face to face, pray together, and find a way that, that will satisfy both of us. There are times when Ken feels, let's say, a little trapped by my paralysis. And that's not new to me. My goodness, I feel trapped by my paralysis at times. The limitations, the, the, the frustrations. And it used to really hurt me personally when Ken would express to me these trapped feelings of his. It really used to hurt, but now I've learned to see things from his point of view. He's never rejecting me. I think more so he's, he's rejecting all of the baggage that goes along with a severe physical disability. And I've had to learn to separate my, myself from that severe physical disability, to, to leave the wheelchair in the corner, so to speak. And so when Ken may say to me, Johnny, I feel, I feel trapped. I just feel like I can't escape from, from all these leg bags and, and the wheelchair and, and ordering all these medical supplies. And I can understand how he feels because I'm, I'm still in the training process of learning to see things from his point of view. And I've got to agree that all things really do fit together into a pattern for good to make us more like Jesus. I, I know my goal in marriage is to help my husband, Ken, become more like Jesus. Sometimes it will be at the expense of my feelings. Sometimes it will be at the expense of, of what I think is reasonable. But the higher goal is to see him become more like Christ. I just wish I more often practiced what I preach. You know, you know actually, though, we've got to remember that all God's martyrs are dead. I mean, come on. If any of us feel like stoics in the middle of our pain or problems, if we feel like martyrs because we've got it tough, we need to remember that, um, that all God's martyrs are dead. So don't feel as though your problems and your trials are are so heavy that, that you view yourself as a martyr. Well, I think for those of us who don't remember Corey, who are listening, Corey was a, a woman who, who she and her family hid Jews in their home in Harlem, the Netherlands, during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And uh, she was thrown into a concentration camp for having done this. And in that camp, she lost her sister and her father. And Corey suffered a great, great deal of persecution. But I love the way she would say, Jesus is Victor. I mean, I, her thick Dutch accent, she would wrap that Dutch accent around those wonderful words, Jesus is Victor. And I'll never forget her funeral. My husband and I were sitting on the front row off to the side. And it was in a small stone chapel and the sunlight was pouring through the stained glass windows, and there were the beautiful soft strains of Bach being played uh, on violins, and there were flowers everywhere, not the, 
not the kinds of fancy flowers stuck in white styrofoam with satin ribbons. No, no, no. Just glass vases after vases of beautiful, fragrant tulips and roses. Um, just, just flowers everywhere. And uh, no fancy banners, no fancy coffin. It was just very plain, um, and it was closed. But uh, the, the, the air of peace and the air of comfort and sweet, that's a good word for it, sweet fellowship in that small stone chapel was just overwhelming. People would um, slowly get up, and each one would go to the front and would just talk about how Corey had, uh, had touched their individual lives. And um, some pastors would get up and read excerpts from her book or recount incidents from her ministry, and they all talked about her love of Jesus. In fact, one pastor uh, said that Corey had specifically instructed him to speak only about Jesus, not about Corey Ten Boom. And, uh, you know, it was the same way with me. She, she encouraged me to, to, to always talk about Jesus, not about the Christian walk or the Christian experience or the Christian lifestyle. She didn't speak of the Lord as though he were some kind of creed or doctrine. No, she spoke about a person, a real person that she loved more than anybody else in the world. And, um, and I learned that from her. When I was a little girl, we used to visit my Uncle Ted's ranch in High Siding, Wyoming, and it was so much fun. I was only about five or six years old, but, um, oh, they put me on a big old retired workhorse, and it was my job to keep the cows corralled at one end of the arena while they were branding them, and I just felt like it was just so important. And these tourists would come by because the, the ranch was situated near Laramie, Wyoming, and, you know, tourists would often drive by to take a look at what a real cattle ranch was all about. They'd stand at a polite distance and, and you know, casually observe all the goings-on and take snapshots with their cameras. Well, I guess that's why, looking back, even now, I resist the label of being a tourist. I mean, come on, when I visit a place, even now, I'm not satisfied to stand at a distance and snap photos. I, I've got to get involved. I want to do things. I want to talk to people who live in the area, you know, learn about the customs. And as a Christian living out the kingdom of God right here on earth, I still feel the same way. I mean, the Bible tells us to be pilgrims on this planet, and then we're not supposed to mistake this world for home, but, but I don't think God wants us to become tourists, just, you know, at a distance, casually observing all the, all the goings-on around at a polite, safe you know, arm's length distance. No, Jesus says, hey, guys, you're the, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. God wants us to get involved and, and rub shoulders. And I think too many of us live down here on earth as though we're tourists, staying at a polite distance from the world's spiritual and practical needs. God wants us to be a pilgrim. He wants us to, to get seriously involved in our church and our neighborhood and our community. So put the camera away. <laughs> you know, take off the tourist uh, tourist hat and start living like you belong down here on earth as salt and light. <laughs> yes, listen, he uses us all right here at this moment. I mean, just giving a smile to a coworker. I mean, really, that means a lot. That can translate so much. It can communicate everything. Just just a, a moment smile. 
um, just a kind word. The other day, I was wheeling into the office, and uh, a fellow who works across the patio on the other office, it's a computer company that, that's in our building, he was outside um, smoking a cigarette, and uh, I guess they have some kind of no-smoking policy in the computer office. Anyway, he was smoking a cigarette outside, and I wheeled by him, and I smiled at him, and he went, hey, great smile, that's the way to start the day. And I said, you know, you are absolutely right. Thanks to the grace of God, I've got a smile that's real. And I went on my way. But his words really started off my morning with a bang. It was wonderful. I, I, I came wheeling into my office singing and whistling just because of the kind encouragement of this guy who works in the computer office across the patio. And uh, he'll, he, he would never understand how much those, those um, neat words got my day off to a great start. You know, Johnny, a lot of times when folks read one of your books or listen to Johnny and Friends on the Air or hear you on Songtime USA, they're looking for some little nugget, something that they can learn from you. I'd like to ask you what you've been learning. Maybe in church, um, you might want to say hello to Pastor John Barnett, who's pastoring out here in New England now and uh, used to be out there in California with you folks and uh, pass along a hello. But what have you been learning as you're sitting in the pew on Sundays? Oh, well, I've been learning to love Jesus, and I don't know how to say it more simply than that. I've been learning about prayer. Uh, I think this year my love for prayer has deepened to a dimension that uh, I, I never dreamed imaginable, but I enjoy praying now. I never used to enjoy praying as much as I do now, and I guess that's because I'm I'm just in love with Jesus more, and, and uh, I see that my prayer for him and to him is the slender nerve which moves his muscles in, 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 in having him do marvelous works down here on earth. I mean, faith can move mountains, but prayer moves God. And just to think that my, my seemingly insignificant little words can move the muscles of the Almighty to perform his deeds here on earth. To me, it makes me feel like I have such an important place in his kingdom. And um, I think it was Spurgeon who once said that our love for God will never rise above our love for prayer. And uh, I want to love God more, so it means praying more. And yet the more I pray the deeper my love for him becomes. And I guess that's what I'm learning. Well, no, it's not really learning something, is it? I think it's experiencing something. And um, that's what's been happening. I'm just, just, I'm just in love with Jesus more. What can I say? Uh, maybe a step, uh, praying more effectively. A lot of people try to pray more, and it doesn't work too well, so they, they slack off, and pretty soon they're back to almost not praying at all. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about praying in our spirit and also in our mind. Most of us pray in our mind. Can we pray more effectively, more deeply? Have you gained any insight in that area? I think when we use Scripture, we pray more effectively and more deeply. I mean, there are times, let's say, when uh, I feel so guilty because of a sin and how wonderful it is just to close my eyes and say, you know, oh God, Lord of all mercies, because of your unfailing love, blot out my transgressions. Help me to never remember my sins. You have separated them from me as far as the east is from the west. Father, against you, you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. I mean, to pray that way, and by the way, I'm, that was a sincere prayer right then. To pray that way, to, to actually 
just share scripture um, from our hearts is a way to put words around our feelings at a time when we just can't we can't grope we can't grasp the, for the syllables we we don't know the right thing to say and oh how wonderful it is to have scripture to say and uh, so the wisdom there of course is is immersing yourself in God's word and memorizing portions of scripture so that when you quote get stuck in prayer you've always got scripture that you can share with the lord and he loves hearing his own language i am constantly reminded that i am to forgive others as god has forgiven me if there's someone i have a grudge against then i am not forgiving them as god has forgiven me and yeah you're right john 103 i mean it says it there as far as the east is from the west he has separated his sins from us as far as the heavens are from the earth, so he has separated our iniquities from us. And he does not reward us according to our sins or deal with us as our iniquities deserve. And we have got a great God of grace. And I think the Lord would want us to be as gracious to others who hurt us. Well, I, I think that thankfulness is a clear, solid recognition of all the things that God has done. And um, I'm thankful to God for the ministry he has given us at Johnny and Friends. When I think, as I shared a few moments ago, of the thousands of lives of people with disabilities whom we've touched for Christ through our outreach, it, it just makes me so thankful to God that he, in his wisdom and in his, in his kindness, would give us this responsibility. I, this summer when I was in the Philippines and when I was in Hungary with Dr. Graham, I had an opportunity to view the pressing and crushing needs, physical needs and spiritual needs of people with severe handicaps in other parts of the world, the poverty, the homelessness, the lack of education, the lack of social services, and that the Lord would give us the chance to minister to these people directly, hands-on, just filled my heart with appreciation and gratefulness to be given the challenge to go out there and make a difference for Jesus. I'm thankful to him for that this year. We recently saw an article in the Boston Sunday Globe magazine about a young woman who has written a book about her experiences in an institution. She was put there by her folks who couldn't afford to keep her at home anymore and couldn't afford to keep her in a better institution. They put her in a state-run hospital here in Massachusetts where for many, many years she lived a living nightmare. She was not very communicative and therefore could not express her needs, wants, desires, pain, suffering. In fact, one time she had broken bones uh, from some rough treatment and laid for more than 48 hours before receiving medical treatment in tremendous agony. This sort of thing happens a lot, not necessarily in third world countries. Sometimes this goes on right here in, in the United States of America. There is tremendous uh, problem. There are tremendous problems for people who are in institutions, who are handicapped, who are physically challenged. Thankful, yes, for your opportunity to reach out, but are you angry too about some of this? Well, I'm angry because we live in a fallen world where people who do not know Christ um, abuse the helpless and make more hopeless those who are already without hope. Let me just give you a personal example. My father is 90 years old, and he's severely physically limited, limited and mentally um, handicapped as well right now. My parents have had to sell their home in Baltimore, Maryland, 
the home that we grew up in. My mom has packed her bags and moved Daddy to Florida, where he is in a small but a very caring board care center down, uh, down in Florida. And she lives two blocks away in a small little room, and she walks there every morning at 8.30 a.m. and is a good wife to her husband. And um, she's there every single day from, you know, 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning until 7 o'clock at night, caring for him, helping to feed him, helping to change his bed. She wants to be a good family member to my dad, and she is doing an excellent job. But, you know, there are scores of other people in that nursing home who have been forgotten by their families. And their families don't live that far away. I visited this board care center, this nursing home. I know these people, and I have seen them lie in bed day after day after day with no one to come, no one to care, no one to comfort. And this is a good board care center. I think of all the other places, the institutions even, where the staff are overworked or underpaid, where, yes, there is sometimes drug abuse or homosexual abuse, or physical abuse, and it breaks my heart. Christians need to wake up to the reality of what is happening, especially among the disability community, families of people with disabilities. We need to extend his love into places like this, the, the people relegated to the back forgotten bedrooms, and make a difference for Christ. Johnny, a lot of people who listen to Christian radio do so on the fringe. They haven't embraced Christianity. They're curious about the whole thing. They see big TV programs and big wheeler-dealer preachers. Uh, we've known each other a long time, so you'll pardon me if this is a little touchy. Someone might have just heard what you said about your folks, and they might say, oh, come on, Johnny, the books, the radio, the movies, the traveling. Surely you can buy your own care center to take care of your dad. I mean, preachers do this sort of thing all the time when they hit the limelight. Would you want to speak to anybody who might feel that way? Yeah, okay. I'll be right up front. A Christian financial manager totally mismanaged my financial affairs, and I owe hundreds of thousands of dollars to the bank. You know, what can I say? You know, my husband and I are in incredible debt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we don't have the money to support my mom and dad as I would like to. And, um, and I was very resentful and very angry about all this that had happened a couple of years ago. But, um, you know, God will supply my needs. He'll supply my husband's needs. He's going to supply the needs of my mom and dad. Uh, my husband and I are saving up right now so we can go back and see my mother and my father uh, during the Christmas holidays. Um, you know, those are the realities. Uh, big deal. There are a lot of people who have it a lot more tough financially than Ken and I will ever have it. And so, uh, you know, we just have to trust God one day at a time and, and believe that he is going to meet my family's needs down there in Florida, as he will meet our needs out here in Southern California. I've never shared that publicly, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the reality that we live with. So let's get on with living. Yeah, I'm glad I asked, because now a lot more people can pray more effectively. You guys, I miss you. I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to have you guys come out here and visit us for a barbecue one Saturday on here in Southern California, okay? As long as we don't fly in at 2 o'clock. <laughs> Not to worry. No, that'd be great. We'd like to see you again soon. You've been listening to Jim Voss and Johnny Erickson Tana. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers. Now you can watch the game. Fly, Eagles, fly!